And I have a hunch there may be a few of you here tonight who when it comes to an issue like abortion, you feel like you've been dropped into an area where you're in way over your head with people you work with, maybe go to school with. You feel like you're outgunned and you're not sure you have the weapons of thought with which to engage those ideas that are hostile to a Christian worldview on this issue. And what I want to do tonight is talk about this question. What does it mean to be equipped to engage on the issue of life? What does that mean? And why that's a challenge for us today has to do with the fact that our culture is currently having a huge argument over two key questions that impact you, your children, and your grandchildren, and they will impact them for decades to come. Here are the two questions we're arguing about. Number one, is truth true? In other words, is moral truth real and knowable? Or is it a mere preference like choosing chocolate ice cream over vanilla, as Greg Kokel puts it? Is truth true? The second issue we've got to be equipped to engage is this. What makes humans valuable? Now, as Christians, we have an answer. Well, we bear the image of God. That's why we have value. That's why the shedding of innocent blood is wrong. And you're right. Those are good answers to people who accept biblical authority. But what about those who don't? Let me give you some example of what we're up against. Eight years ago, a singer by the name of Nick Cannon, he's married to Mariah Carey, he's a rapper, he wrote a song entitled, I Want to Live, or also goes by the title, Can I Live? And it's about his own mother who when she was pregnant with Nick and ready to abort him at age 17, last moment possible, walked out of that clinic. And that's why we have Nick Cannon with us today. And thinking back on that moment in his mother's life, Nick penned a song as if he's speaking to her from the womb. And here's the line that got some people angry. He writes, Mom, I hope you'll make the right decision and not go through with the knife incision. Whoa. When he penned those words, Mom, I hope you'll make the right decision, here's what some critics said. And I know because I was in on a conference call with him, and he was describing the flack he was getting for this. People said, Nick, who are you to judge? Who are you to say what's right and wrong for that girl who's 17? Do you know what it's like to be 17 and pregnant? If you don't know what that's like, who are you to say what the right decision is? You have no right to judge, and you have no right to impose your morals on others. Now, of course, a little time out. When they said he shouldn't judge, what did they just do? They judged him. And when they said he shouldn't impose his views on others, well, that's exactly what they were doing because they were imposing their particular view on him. But forget that for a moment. Notice what got people angry is when Nick Cannon claimed he was right. And you know, for those of you that are Christians, you see this across the board on the Christian worldview. You may have recalled that three years ago there was a discussion, I don't know if you saw this, on Fox News about Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, the golfer who's had marital issues, as you know, because he has not exactly been uh, a shining example of virtue in the marriage relationship. And Fox News was talking about this, and they had this panel. What does Tiger need to do to get his life back in order? And the first panelist, I, I think it was Bill Crystal, said something about, you know, he's got to get in touch with his core values. And if he doesn't get in touch with his core values, he, he's not going to get his life back together. The next panelist said something about, well, he needs counseling. 
He, he's got to uncover what's going on in there. And then it came to Brit Hume. And here's what Brit Hume said. Tiger Woods will recover in his golf game. He will probably win another Masters. But he's not going to recover in his personal life if he doesn't reject Buddhism, which can't save him, and turn to the God of Christianity, who alone offers restoration and forgiveness. Outside of that, he's not going to recover. Men and women, within seconds, YouTube was aflame with people saying, how dare he impose his view? How intolerant for him to claim that he is right. In fact, theologian D.A. Carson has coined a phrase for this. We now live under what is known as the intolerance of tolerance. It's got a book by that title. And here's what he means. The classical definition of tolerance goes like this. I think your idea is wrong. In fact, I think it's nuts. But I will respect you. You have the freedom to express your view. And we'll examine it and have a discussion. That's the classical view of tolerance. I like that view of tolerance. Here's the new definition. Don't you dare claim to be right about anything that has to do with religion or ethics. Don't you dare claim your view is true with a capital T. The moment you do that, we will not tolerate you. Pope Benedict put it real well. He said in the 21st century, we suffer under a dictatorship of relativism. And if you can tolerate a Southern Baptist who has Presbyterian theology interpreting the Pope, here's what he meant. We have become so permissive in our culture that, as Greg Kokel says, you can marry your canary and we'll let you. But the minute you claim you're right as objectively right on a moral issue, we're not going to tolerate that. The intolerance of tolerance. And here's my question. How do we make a case for life in that kind of worldview that's all around us? And on the question of human value, it's particularly disturbing what is it that makes humans valuable? Not only is that being reduced to a subjective question in many cases, the implications of what some of this pans out to look like are frightening. Peter Singer teaches at Princeton University. He's written a book called Practical Ethics. Practical Ethics is the standard issue ethics course book you get at the graduate level just about anywhere in the Western world. Peter Singer writes that no newborn should be considered a person until 30 days after birth, and disabled infants can be killed on the spot if it suits the preferences of the parents. And he goes on to argue that if you disagree with him on that, you're just letting your outdated religious faith get in the way of clear, rational thinking. Now, brothers and sisters, I need to ask a question. How do we bring moral clarity as Christians to a world that is sinking in relativism, in the idea that truth can't be known, that tolerance means you don't claim to be right, and we're certainly not going to accept biblical authority because that, after all, is absolutist. So how are we going to make our case for the pro-life view? One thing that won't work is for us to simply say, well, the Bible's pro-life. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Scripture is not authoritative. It, I'm not for a moment suggesting that it's not inerrant. I believe all that. I'm just asking the question with people who do not accept biblical authority. Maybe we need to start with a couple of questions prior to running to the Bible. And I want to give you what those questions are tonight. 
I want to give you the questions that will equip you to engage so that when you land on that beach, whether it's a campus somewhere or your job or, dare I say it, people you might worship with, you're ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you when it comes to the pro-life issue. You're ready to argue. How many of you like to argue? Can I see your hands? We've got a couple of honest people here. The rest of you are flat-out liars. <laughs> Let me rephrase the question. How many of you, when you argue, you want to win? If your hand is not up, you need counseling. You, sir, did not raise your hand. I'd like to argue with you about that. Ever seen the Monty Python argument clinic uh, clip? Go home and YouTube it. it it's great. I want to talk about how we argue well, and we argue well on this issue by asking three key questions and answering them persuasively, and here they are. Number one, we answer the question, what is the unborn? And I'm going to explain why the abortion debate comes down to that issue. Number two, we answer the question persuasively, what makes us valuable as human beings? Number three, we answer the question, what is our duty? And I want to just walk you through these three questions. I'll take about 40 minutes to do it at the most. And then I want to turn it over to you, let you ask any questions you want, and I'll do my best to give you a good answer. Let's take that first question, what is the unborn? Here is the lie that many of the people you live around and work with and maybe go to school with have bought into. It goes like this. Abortion is a complex issue. Um, actually, it's not. It's psychologically complex in that we feel sympathy for that 17-year-old girl who's pregnant, whose boyfriend has dumped her or will dump her if she doesn't abort, whose parents don't seem receptive to having a daughter in the home who is pregnant and unmarried. We feel sympathy for her, and we should. But does it follow that because we feel sympathy for her, there's not a right answer morally? And I argue that whether abortion is right or wrong comes down to one key question. What is the unborn? Can we kill the unborn? My answer is yes, we can. If. If what? If the unborn are not human. If morally speaking, abortion is no different than pulling a tooth, I see no reason to object to it. But if it takes the life of a defenseless human being without justification, that's another issue altogether different. We've got to answer the question, what is the unborn, before we answer the question, can we kill the unborn? I referenced my friend Greg Kokel a moment ago. He has a great way of illustrating this. He says, imagine you're at your kitchen sink one day washing dishes, and your five-year-old comes in behind you, your five-year-old boy, and with your back turned, he says to you, Daddy or Mommy, can I kill this? Ladies, if you don't think that is a possibility in a household dominated by men, let me enlighten you. I've been married for 27 years to the most glorious woman in all of Christendom. We have a son 22 in the U.S. Army. He's up on the DMZ in Korea. We have a son 21 in the U.S. Army. He's in Afghanistan. We have a son 16. He's sitting back there at the back table. And I have a daughter 12. I have personally heard the question, Daddy, can I kill this many times? And he usually has his hands on his brother's throat when he's asking the question. <laughs> what would be the first question out of your mouth when you hear that little voice say, Daddy or Mommy, can I kill this? Kill what? Kill what? What has he got? 
Cockroach, snail, fire ant, have fun, don't show mom. Neighbor kitty, whoa. Brother by the throat, counseling time, right? You have issues. You would not in a million years say, sure, son, have at it, till you answered the predicate question, what has he got? Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. They brought this dude up from Atlanta for this? <laughs> yes, it's a pedestrian example. But it actually gets us to the heart of the abortion issue. Can we kill the unborn? Our answer should be yes. If. If what? If the unborn aren't human. I do a lot of debates on abortion. And I do them on university campuses. And uh, my opponents lately have been Nadine Strausen, president of the ACLU for 18 years, Malcolm Potts, the first international medical director for Planned Parenthood, uh, Catherine Neer, who's the president of California Planned Parenthood. And at virtually every one of those debates, my opponent will say this. Well, we don't know if the unborn are human. Scott's question, what is the unborn, is completely beside the point. Nobody can know if the unborn are human. In fact, I remember one debate I did where my opponent pulled out a letter from the YWCA to prove that no one knows when life begins. Now, can I ask a question here? If you are asking an empirical question about when life begins, is your peer-reviewed source the YWCA? <laughs> Apparently, and her argument was, well, we don't know if the unborn are human. So abortion should be a personal choice. If we don't know if the unborn are human, should we be killing them? If you're driving home tonight from this lecture and you see out in front of you beyond the lights what looks like an old coat in the road, just an old black coat, but it could be an old man who had a little bit too much to drink at the local pub, are you going to run the coat over? Or to use an example from former President Ronald Wilson Reagan, if you're out hunting and you see bushes rustling in front of you and you don't know if it's that deer you've been after or your best buddy, are you going to open fire? Not unless you're Dick Cheney, right? You're going to err on the side of caution. I mean, there's no way you're going to do that. I promise there'd only be one political or maybe two political jokes tonight. That one doesn't count. I still got two to go. If you don't know if the unborn are human, you shouldn't be killing them. And yet our opponents are saying we don't have to answer the question. You've got to answer the question, what is the unborn? It all comes down to that. Now, I want to give you a little tactic for dealing with this issue in a way that's gracious. You're not going to be nasty about it. And I want you to hear me tonight. I'm not interested in shouting conclusions to people, especially if we're going to do it rudely. I am interested in arguing. And by arguing, I mean what the Bible means by arguing. 1 Peter 3.15, we are told to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. That word answer, apologia, is the Greek root for it. It means to set forth your case. We need to be ready to do that. And we're given a qualification for it. We're to do that persuasively, yes. But we're also to do it with gentleness and we're to do it graciously. And that's what I'm talking about here. So I want to give you tools for doing that kind of apologetic, not rude stuff. And here's a tactic you can use when people seem to be assuming the unborn aren't human. And this is a huge problem in discussions on abortion. Rather than argue that the unborn aren't human, some of our critics, in fact, the vast majority of them, simply assume the unborn 
are not human. I'm going to pick on you for just a minute because I think it was your cell phone who went off, right? <laughs> I just have to do this. Do you have a brother? No, I don't. Um, do you have a sister? I have a sister. What's that? I had a sister, yes. Okay. Uh, let me ask you a different question then. Do you have a best friend? Have you stopped beating your best friend yet? Yeah, have you stopped beating him? I didn't ask you if you started. I asked, have you stopped? Yes. You're good. We're glad. How long ago? <laughs> Prayer works, people. Testimony right here. Now, was that a fair question? No. What was unfair about it? I assumed he's beating his best friend. Did I present one shred of evidence that he was doing that? No. I just assumed it. This is what Francis J. Beckwith calls begging the question on the abortion debate. Instead of arguing the unborn are human, some of our critics just assume they're not human. Let me give you some examples. When President Barack Obama revised the federal guidelines on embryonic stem cell research, this is where we take human embryos, we kill them so we can take their stem cells and use them to treat disease in others. I'm going to paraphrase the argument he made. We shouldn't let beneficial research that can help us be stymied by those not trained in the sciences. Let me translate this for you. Science trumps morality. Now, suppose we were talking about killing two-year-olds to benefit five-year-olds. Would anybody argue we shouldn't let morality trump science? No. Well, Peter Singer, maybe. Anybody you know? Probably not. Why was that rhetoric effective? And by the way, it resonates with people. Notice the president did not define us. This research benefits us. Mr. President, does us include them, meaning the embryos that are going to be destroyed? You see how he simply assumed the embryos in question weren't human? Suppose someone comes along and says, well, I believe people have a right to privacy. Now, I like privacy. It's a very good thing. But what if someone wanted the right to kill their toddler in the privacy of their own bedroom? Should they be allowed to do that? No one's going to say that. Of anybody with a functioning conscience, that is. Why do they say that with abortion? It's very simple. They assume the unborn aren't human. Your job is to flush that assumption out into the open, and here's the little tactic you're going to use to do it. It's called trot out the toddler, and here's, here's how it works. Real simple. Every time you hear someone make an argument for abortion, I want you instinctively, first thing in your head, I don't want you thinking about, uh-oh, what facts can I throw out at them? I don't want you thinking about, uh-oh, how am I, I going to construct a masterful rebuttal? I don't, I don't want you doing that. I want you to do one thing. I want you to just ask yourself one question. Would this work as a good argument for killing a toddler? If the answer is no, what is your friend assuming about the unborn that he's not assuming about the toddler? That the unborn are not what? Human. He hasn't argued for that. He's simply assuming it. So here's how the tactic works. Someone comes to you and says, well, women have a right to privacy. Don't begin a refutation. Hold out your hand at waist high and say, I have a toddler in front of me. Pretend I have a toddler in front of me. His parents want the freedom to rough him up in the privacy of the bedroom. Should they be allowed to do that? What will your friend say at that point? No, you can't do that. 
Your reply? Two words. Why not? Well, because he's a human being. Your reply? One word. Ah, and you should get that awe down. It can be helpful. <laughs> ah, what? If the unborn are human like that toddler, should we be killing the unborn in the name of privacy any more than we'd kill a toddler? Oh, well, that's different. The unborn aren't human. The toddler is. Ah, that's the issue. Now, let me ask a question, and this is a very important question. Have I even argued for my position yet? No. All I'm doing is framing the debate. Little heads up here. If you study debate, he or she who frames the issue almost always wins the exchange. Almost always. You're framing the debate around the one question we need to answer before we can answer any others. What is the unborn? Let's try another one, and, and uh, you can jump in and help me out if you want. Suppose someone comes to you and says, well, I think we need to trust women to make their own personal decisions. We should trust them and not presume to know for them what's best for them. All right, now, what is that assuming about the unborn? That they're not human. Would we argue this way if we were talking about killing two-year-olds? No. So there's an assumption here about the unborn. So don't panic. Let's trot out a toddler. I have a two-year-old in front of me. His parents think we should trust them to make their own decisions about how they treat him, and they can do anything they want with him. Should we be allowed to do that? Your critic will say what at that point? No, you can't do that. Your reply? Not all. You're too anxious, a few of you. <laughs> Why not? Well, because he's a human being. Ah, we got a church choir here right now. What'd you learn tonight, honey? Ah, you should have been there. Now, ah, if the unborn are human, we shouldn't kill them in the name of trusting women any more than we'd kill a toddler for that reason. Oh, but that's different. The unborn aren't human. The toddler is. Your reply? Ah, that's the issue. Are the unborn human like the toddler? Now, again, you haven't even argued your case yet. In fact, it's possible for you to support abortion and agree that it does come down to the question of the unborn. Not that everybody on the other side sees it that way, but a lot of them do. You've got to answer that question, what is the unborn, before you answer the question, can I kill the unborn? Think of the, the most common objections you hear. Women are going to die from back alley abortions if we make abortion illegal. What does that assume about the unborn? Well, it assumes they're not human. I mean, stop and think about it for a moment. Why should the law be faulted for making it more risky for one human to take the life of another completely innocent one? You see the problem with this? Unless you begin with the assumption that the unborn are not human, something you've not argued for, you're essentially saying that because some people will die attempting to kill others, the state ought to make it safe and legal for them to do it. This is an absurdity. The only way you avoid the absurdity is to assume that the unborn aren't human. Well, I've raised the question. Now I'm going to answer it. And this is going to be risky tonight because I have medical personnel in this auditorium and they're seated near the front. And I'm not going to point them out because I wouldn't want to embarrass them. I'll just say that their initials can easily be known by a blue, green sweater and a blue medical smock that is being worn. But that, don't worry about that. I will answer the question, what is the unborn? And I'm not going to go to Scripture to do it because it's not a biblical question. We will go to Scripture when we need to, but the question, what is the unborn, is not a philosophical or theological question. Our critics want to make it that, so they can make it subjective. The question, what is the unborn, is empirical. 
and we go to the science of embryology to answer it. What does the science of embryology teach about the unborn? Here we go in a sentence. You don't need a biology degree. I'm just going to give it to you in a sentence. From the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. Watch what I'm about to do. I am plucking cells off the back of my hand. You can't see these cells. These are called somatic cells or bodily cells. You've got them. I got them. It's the stuff we're made of. Each of these cells that I'm plucking off the back of my hand contain my DNA encoding, and I just sent a couple of hundred of those puppies hurling to their deaths on the rug in front of me. But no one listening to me right now thinks I've committed mass homicide, and I'll tell you why. You know that these cells on the back of my hand are merely part of a larger human being, me. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. There is a difference in kind between each of our bodily cells and the embryonic human beings we once were. That's what the science of embryology teaches. Why is this difficult for people? I'll give you two reasons. The first is many, many people confuse construction with development. And this is a point philosopher Richard Stith has made very, very clear. And let me explain what that means. It sounds complex. It's not. Suppose we were to examine a quote from Michael Kinsley, journalist Michael Kinsley, CNN columnist from a few years ago, when he said, and I paraphrase, a goldfish resembles a human being more than an embryo does. And then he gave his justification for saying that. He says embryos are just clumps of cells. And we wouldn't think that clumps of cells are human beings any more than we would think that a car is a car when we put the first two plates together. All right? Now, here's the critical error that Kinsley is making. He is looking at human development and redefining it in terms of construction. And I want to explain to you why that doesn't work. Suppose we go over to Dulles, we jump on a plane, and we fly to Bowling Green, Kentucky tonight so that tomorrow morning we can tour a particular automobile plant that's located in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, is there anybody here prepared to tell me what car is constructed at Bowling Green, Kentucky? Correct. Yes, sir. And if you don't want one, again, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you can go to Bowling Green. I've been there twice. And I guess if you hang around long enough, you can watch a Corvette from when the first two metal plates are put together, watch it go down the line until it's fully constructed and rolls off the line. Let's suppose we do that. Would we think, if we're watching the construction of a Corvette, that there's a Corvette when the first two metal plates are put together? Yes or no? No, you don't have a Corvette yet. Those two metal plates could be used for a table. They could be used to make, a, you know, a barbecue. Who knows? You don't have a Corvette. How about when the frame is totally welded together? Probably not. How about when the powertrain's added? Engine, tranny, front suspension? Getting close, right? How about when the body's attached to the frame? Maybe when the interior is added? Yeah, now we're seeing some head nod. Some of you skeptics will hold out until the tires touch the ground. That's okay. You're fine. Here's my point. Nobody here thinks you got a Corvette. 
when those first two plates are put together, and rightfully so. But men and women, when you were embryos, you pulled off a stunt no Corvette ever pulled off. In fact, you pulled off a stunt that no constructed thing like a Corvette ever pulled off. You developed yourselves from within. The creator of the universe engineered human beings and all living things so that their development is internally driven. No Corvette ever crawled off the assembly line of its own power. But when you were an embryo, already programmed into you, was the necessary principle to drive your own internal, internally directed development. That's the difference between a car that's constructed and an embryo that develops. And a lot of people don't understand that. Did I get that right? Close. Okay, so I got the nod of approval. So you now have peer-reviewed proof that what I just told you was right. There's another reason, though, why people don't get this. Why don't they get that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, whole human beings? And the answer is they don't want to get it. They don't want to get it. It's, as Greg Cunningham points out, ignorance sustained by denial. And you're dealing with people who think moral truth is a preference, like choosing chocolate ice cream over vanilla. And therefore, when they look at an issue like abortion and ask the question, what is the unborn? It's not really a question they want to get into. They'd rather not deal with it. How do you reach people who think moral truth is a preference on an issue like abortion, a mere preference like ice cream? How do you reach people like that with the idea that there is right and wrong on this issue and that right and wrong is objective? One answer is to give them a chance to view what's actually at stake in the abortion debate. How many of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? That's almost all of you. Saving Private Ryan? Yeah. You've seen these movies that were incredibly graphic. The first 40 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, or if you've seen a film series like uh, The Walking Dead, or, uh, well, we won't say The Walking Dead. We'll we'll say Band of Brothers. That's more historical. Walking Dead is for the zombie freaks, and um, I actually got that for Christmas. And I wrote an article about what The Walking Dead can teach pro-lifers. It's on on my Facebook page now. But (laughs) Um, Think of a movie like The Passion of the Christ, Saving Private Ryan. Why do teachers show their uh, students these films? And the answer is pretty simple because they convey truth in a way that words never could. It's not to manipulate students. It's to convey truth that otherwise wouldn't be understood. I'm going to show you in just a few moments a 55-second video clip. That's it, 55 seconds. Let me tell you what's in the clip so you can look away if you don't want to watch. You will not see an abortion performed from start to finish, but you will see the aftermath, and I want to warn you, it's disturbing. It's not easy to look at. You will see a first trimester fetus, a second trimester fetus, and a third trimester fetus post-abortion. And it's tough viewing. And in order to make it possible for you to totally avoid this presentation without leaving your seat, 
We've taken the narration out of the clip, and I will not describe what's on the screen. If you want to avoid the contents that you're, uh, that's about to be shown by simply averting your gaze, and we'll even darken the room to make it easy for you to do that. You can avoid this film completely by simply looking away. You'll hear nothing of description. Second thing I want to say, and please hear me on this, it's pretty likely that there are a handful of people listening to me tonight, maybe more than a handful of people, that for you to even be here tonight and hear this lecture is taking tremendous courage because you've been impacted by abortion directly. And I don't know if I'm talking to a guy who encouraged a girl to abort or a woman who made that choice because you didn't think you had any other option. I'm not here to condemn you, and I want to tell you why. I'm not here to condemn you because I'm a firm believer in the gospel of Jesus. And men and women, let's be clear what that gospel teaches. That gospel puts every one of us seated here tonight and standing here tonight on the same footing before the bar of God's justice. The gospel is the story of a good God who creates a good world with people to worship and enjoy him. And our first parents rebel against their creator, set themselves up as God, and God who had every right to destroy the race for its rebellion. I mean, think about that for a moment. If God saved no one, would he still be a just God? The answer is yes. In fact, when people complain that, you know, what's wrong with God? How can he claim to be good because he allows evil? Well, what if he starts with their evil? I mean, here's a good question. If God got rid of all evil at midnight tonight, where would we all be at 1201, you know? <laughs> this question of how God dealt with our evil is answered in the most profound way in that God didn't deal with us the way he was rightfully able to do so. Instead, he sent Jesus to bear in full his wrath against sin. We don't like that term wrath. We think of an angry authority figure, someone out of control. God's wrath is simply his settled hatred of sin. And if God is holy, he's got to punish sin. And guess what he did? By pouring out his wrath on a substitute, his son, so that those who trust in him are forgiven for their evil. And not only that, those who do trust in the, in the Son are adopted into God's family as dearly loved children. And that includes an awful lot of post-abortion men and women who have been reconciled to their Creator by placing their faith in Jesus. So if you're here tonight and you've had an experience with abortion, this is not about condemning you. This is about getting at the truth and helping a culture understand what's at stake in the abortion debate so we can bring clarity. Last thing I want to say, parents, if there are any children in this room under the age of seventh grade, I think you need to think about whether they should see this clip. And you don't have to leave the room, but do encourage them not to watch by putting your arm around them. Uh, I think that'd be a good idea, just encouraging them not to watch. So just that little proviso. And with that said, let's go ahead. We'll roll this 55-second clip. And then I have two more things to say, and then I want to take your questions. So... At this point, we'll go ahead and roll this. In 1955, an African-American boy, 14 years old by the name of Emmett Till Jr., journeyed from Chicago where he was living to visit his cousin in the town of Money, Mississippi. And when that 14-year-old boy got off the train, he began to brag to his cousin about his two white girlfriends back in Chicago. The cousin and the cousin's friend would hear none of it. And they said to him, we dare you 
to talk to a white girl down here. They had no clue what they were setting him up for. That afternoon, after Emmett continued to brag about his white girlfriends back in Chicago, they went into a little grocery store, Brian's Grocery Store in downtown Money, Mississippi, where Emmett purchased a piece of gum and very innocently but flirtatiously said to the white married clerk behind the counter, 21-year-old young woman, said, thanks, babe, and flashed her a big smile. Now, we hear that today. We think, what's the big deal? Big deal if you were black in 1955 and you did that to an adult woman. A couple of nights later, Emmett was taken at gunpoint from his uncle's home by the woman's husband and another man. They drove him outside Money, Mississippi, and after savagely torturing this boy for several hours, they finally finished him off with a shot to the head. When the sheriff discovered Emmett's body in a riverbed, he could not believe the sight of this kid, beaten beyond recognition, horrific sight, put what was left of Emmett in a coffin, sealed it, and put a note included to Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, that read, don't open this, you won't like what you see. And when Mamie Till got the body, and the press gathered around her in Chicago to inquire about what her plans would be, she announced that there would be an open casket funeral for her son. And the journalists went berserk. You can't do this. You'll offend people. They'll be angry. She said, I know, but I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. And that image of Emmett Till in that coffin, you can Google it, black and white photo. It was published nationally in Jet Magazine, and it was one of the things that was a catalyst for launching the civil rights movement in this country. In fact, Rosa Parks, three months later, when told to go to the back of the bus, refused, and she tells us in her later writings why she held her ground. And she said, I couldn't get the image of that boy out of my head. Why do we show stuff like this? Not to beat people up, not to manipulate them. Why do I show this at debates? Not to make people feel awful for just making them feel awful. I'll tell you why we do it. Because I'm convinced if pro-life Christians don't lovingly but truthfully open the casket on abortion... Our nation's going to continue to tolerate an injustice it never has to look at. But at the same time we open that casket, we open the truth of God's word that sinners can be reconciled to their creator because Jesus paid in full for their rebellion. We offer truth, but we offer hope. I want to wrap up with the final two questions. I took most of my time on the first one. It was the most important. Last two questions. What makes humans valuable? If you're a Christian, you know the answer to this. In fact, if you're a theist of any kind, for the most part, you know the answer to this. Humans have value because of whose image they bear. You can be Jewish and believe that. You can be Christian and believe that. Whether you're Dennis Prager or Andy Stanley, you can believe that humans have value because they bear the image of their maker. But to a secularized culture that thinks moral truth is relativistic, How do we make this claim? How do we make the claim that humans at the embryonic stage have value the way an adult does? And you do it by simply pointing out that there's no relevant difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today 
that would justify killing you at that earlier stage of development. And Stephen Schwartz has a great acronym for remembering the four differences between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today and demonstrating that none of those four differences are morally relevant such that we could say you could be killed then but not now. Here are the four differences. Size, level of development, environment, meaning where we're located, Degree of dependency. Think of the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. Easy to do on a night like this, right? S-L-E-D. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. I'm about to show you that not one of those is a good reason for saying you could be killed then, but not now. Size, there's your S. Yes, we were smaller as embryos than we are today. But it's not enough to just point that out. And oh boy, our critics love to do this. They point out differences, but they don't argue why those differences matter. That won't cut it. You've got to argue why body size as a principle means you can be killed. They don't do that. So let's use this SLED acronym to illustrate the problem. Size. You were smaller as an embryo than you are tonight. But since when does body size determine the value that you have? Men are generally larger than women. We don't think men have more fundamental rights than women do simply because on balance they tend to be larger. We don't think that Dwight Howard, the seven-foot center for the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, I think I may need counseling right now, being the Laker fan that I am in the year they're having right now. Uh, it's not going well. Uh, but Dwight Howard is a foot taller than everyone in this room. Does it follow he has a greater right to life simply because he's bigger? Body size doesn't equal value. What about your level of development? Yes, you were less developed as an embryo than you are today. But it's not enough to simply note that. You've got to argue the next step. Why does bodily development bestow value? Two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. Two-year-old girls do not have a developed reproductive system. Does it follow the 21-year-old young woman has more human rights than the 2-year-old simply because the 2-year-old is less developed? I speak to high school audiences all the time. And I talk to students. I'll be speaking to about 2,500 of them tomorrow at the Students for Life conference. And when I speak to high school students, I always make the observation. I say, you are less developed than your parents. You are less developed than your parents physically, and you're less developed than your parents intellectually, which comes as a complete shock to all of them. <laughs> but the truth is, you don't reach your intellectual peak until your mid-40s. Does it follow your parents have a greater right to life than you simply because they're more developed? Boy, do the kids jump all over that one. Size, level of development. By the way, on this question of development, Abraham Lincoln dealt with it superbly. When Lincoln would debate the issue of slavery, he would point out to his opponents that none of the reasons they were giving for justifying enslaving the black man were reasons that couldn't also be used to justify many whites. In fact, in one exchange with an imaginary opponent, he wrote out an exchange. And here's what it says. I'll paraphrase it for you. Lincoln says this to his imaginary opponent. You say man A is white, man B is dark, the fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man? Take care. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it is not skin color. It is a matter of intellect. 
The white man, you allege, has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to your own. You say it is not skin color. It is not intellect. It's a matter of interest. The white man having it in his interest to enslave the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you are a slave to the first person you meet who can make it his interest to enslave you. You see how Lincoln was showing that by the force of principled reasoning, every argument used to disqualify that black man as a valuable human being turned right around and ends up biting a whole lot of white people too. By the same token, as soon as you start arguing that development is what gives you value, it follows that those with more of it have a greater right to life than those with less. David Boonin, a philosopher at the University of Colorado in his book, A Defense of Abortion, which I consider to be the most articulate defense of the abortion rights position that's out there. It's articulate for a lot of reasons. Number one, he's not angry. He writes in a very polite style. But here's his argument. Until you have a desire to go on living, you're not harmed if you're killed. And because fetuses don't have organized cortical brain function till sometime after week 24, maybe as late as week 32, they're not really deprived of anything because their brain structure doesn't allow them to desire to go on living. Therefore, abortion is morally permissible. Okay? Now, let's just think about this for a moment. Desire grants a right to life. And if you don't have the immediately exercisable ability to desire something, you can be killed. Can a slave be conditioned not to desire his freedom? Is he still entitled to it in virtue of the kind of thing he is? If I'm doing construction work, which isn't a good idea, given I'm not very good with hammer and nails, and I accidentally shoot myself in, a head, in the head with a staple gun, one of those air guns, and I damage my brain, I live but I damage the part of the brain that controls desire and I no longer desire anything. Can I be killed because I no longer desire anything? But Boonin's got another problem. His argument disqualifies newborns. Newborns don't desire things. Here's why. In order to desire something, you have to have two things, belief and judgment. And those things don't come into the infant's mind until several months after birth and maybe even the second year. His argument proves too much. If desire is what gives you a right to life, those who have greater desire have a greater right to life than those with less. Size, level of development. What about environment where you're located? You were in the womb, now you're out. How does where you are determine what you are? When you walk from out there in that cold weather into this warm sanctuary, you change location. You did not stop being you. If that's true, how does a journey of eight inches down the birth canal, suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being we can't. Answer, if you weren't already human and valuable, you don't get there by changing your address. Size, level of development, environment, finally, degree of dependency. Yes, you depended on your mothers for survival, but since when does dependency on another human being mean we can kill you? Conjoined twins share each other's bodily systems, and unless there is a direct threat to one of the twins' life, there's no talk about killing them because they depend on each other. In fact, I don't know if you've seen that uh, 
that Life magazine and uh, what's their names? Uh, I want to say Brittany and Abigail, but I don't think that's right. There's two conjoined twins that are now in their early 20s, and they've been the, the, the media has followed them from the time they were uh, toddlers. They're joined literally at the hip. You look at these two girls, there's one set of legs, and then from the waist up, they branch off into two shoulders, two, uh, two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. Oh, and they're driving now. I'm sorry, I am not on the road when they are. Let's go left, let's go right, no, let's hit that dude. No, I'm not going there, all right? But they're driving. And these two girls, it's amazing to watch them in an interview. But here's my point. If your right to life is contingent on living independent of another human being, then neither one of those girls has a right to life and they can both be killed. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, think sled. Those are the only four differences between that embryo you once were and the adult you are today. And not one of them is a good reason for saying you could be killed then but not now. I'll end with this quickly and then I want to take your questions. What's our duty? I'll tell you what I think our duty is. We have to love our unborn neighbor. Is the unborn our neighbor? He is if he's a human being, and we've made a case tonight that he's just that. We use science to demonstrate that the unborn are distinct, living, whole human beings. We use philosophy to show that there's no relevant difference between that embryo you once were and the adult you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. We made a case for our view. Now, you might say, I don't buy that case. But at least a case was made. We didn't ask you to simply assume our view. We made a case for it. Now, I happen to think it's a pretty persuasive case. And you're welcome to disagree. You'll be dead wrong, but you're welcome to disagree. And uh, that was a joke, an attempt to bond with my audience, and it went down faster than the Lakers. But um, <laughs> how do we love our unborn neighbor? I think there's two things we need to be willing to do. Number one, we need to be willing to suffer for our unborn neighbor. The Good Samaritan went out of his way to help a fellow traveler. Two religious leaders walked right by. They felt pity, I'm sure, but Christ castigates them because they didn't act like they felt pity. And I will warn you that if you want to engage on the abortion issue, either by financially supporting your crisis pregnancy centers that are in the area, and we have some represented here tonight, or partnering with pro-life groups, It'll cost some things because you can't keep those people in business without financially supporting them. You will take hits from people who don't understand you. And at that moment, you'll have to decide, do I care more about what people think or do I care more about making a kingdom impact? But there's a second thing we do to love our unborn neighbor. We've got to equip ourselves to engage. Just before we go to questions, I'll tell you what's on the back table in case it's something you want. Uh, we have three items. And I would encourage you to get all three for 20 bucks. Now, why am I doing that? Uh, first of all, two items just came out in the last two weeks. We now have a copy, uh, nearly two hours of pro-life apologetics training covering a lot of what you heard here today and more on this DVD. Uh, professionally shot, it's me at Summit Ministries out in Colorado teaching students how to defend the pro-life view. You can get this, show it to your adult friends, show it to your kids. It's here. If you can press the play switch on a DVD, you can get that. Also, a new book I co-authored with John Enzer. John Enzer is a guy who goes over to China and has launched a pro-life movement in China in a nation that has forced abortions. And he's talking to pastors over there. You want to hear something staggering? Not this church, thankfully. 
But I know pastors that won't touch abortion with a 10-foot pole because they're afraid they're going to catch flack for it. And there are pastors over in China who will be killed for speaking out on abortion, and they're doing it. We better get our priorities straight. And we also got my book, The Case for Life. We're, we're packaging this. We're just calling it the Pro-Life Apologetics Kit. It's 20 bucks, and uh, you can get that. Or if you just want The Case for Life and the DVD, or I'm sorry, uh, John Enter's book with me, Stand for Life, and the DVD for 10, you can do that. Um, not trying to hard sell, just want you to know that it's there. Uh, last thing. Some of you were taking notes fast and furiously about the sled and you were thinking to yourselves, why didn't he just bring a card that summarized that perfectly so I could put it on my refrigerator and be reminded of that? And I'm so glad you thought of that because I did bring such a card. And um, all you've got to do to keep it, here's all you've got to do to keep it. Where Michael is back there, go to the back table. And uh, even if you're not picking up the, the, the books, you're welcome to take sled cards. But here's what you've got to do. Tear this off. Leave us a mailing address. I don't care if it's your work or home. We'll start sending you our five-minute pro-lifer, which is a one-page article on defending the pro-life view. We'll start sending that to you, and you can take the sled portion home. It's yours guilt-free. <laughs> so, having said all that, uh, what questions can I answer about anything that I said here tonight? And I'm happy to do my best to answer anything you've... And, may, and there were some things I didn't bring up, obviously, but I'm happy to answer them as best I can right now. So you're first, and then you're next. The question is, is there an agreement among the media to not show pictures of abortion? I'll tell you why this is problematic. They will gladly show pictures of terrorist victims who get blown up in Spain on a train. Or, believe me, do you think they would be willing to use bloody pictures if they could use it to, to drum up support for gun restrictions? You know good and well they would. Uh, and have. So there is a double standard. You're absolutely correct. Now, here's how we're getting around this. Number one, when I do debates, this video gets shown. When I speak in churches, this video gets shown. When I speak at pregnancy center banquets, almost always this video gets shown. And here's the great news, folks. I get almost zero complaints. I'm trying to think. It's been years since somebody has gotten in my face about showing this video. If you're polite and you tell people what's in it, you invite them to look away, you stress grace that you're not there to condemn, it diffuses the problem. And people generally will watch the video and they don't complain. Uh, that's one way we get around it. Social media has helped us tremendously. Uh, I went up to a group of schools in Canada, a whole group of Catholic schools last, uh, it'll be a, a year in February, and in Canada, the Catholic schools are run by the government. They're funded by the government. And so the, the, the faculty was like, no way, you're showing those pictures. No way. So I said, well, am I allowed to give out a website to the students where the video is? Well, I guess so. So guess what I had behind me the whole time I was speaking? Caseforlife.com. And guess what I challenged every one of those kids to do? I want you to go home tonight. I want you to go to caseforlife.com, watch the 55-second video, and I want you to post it on your Facebook status. Guess how many thousands of kids saw that video that day? Because we were able to, to do an end run around that. So uh, these pictures need to be shown, but we shouldn't expect the media to do the work for us. And by the way, if we as pro-life Christians aren't willing to show them, we shouldn't be complaining that the media won't show them.
we got to do our part here. Uh, so, yeah, great question. Uh, her, then you, sir. The question is, have any of my opponents in debate softened their view toward me or the pro-life position? Um, no. I'm being honest. Uh, I don't know of any opponent I've debated that I've converted. Um, now, having said that, you're thinking, well, there go why did we even come hear this guy tonight when he hasn't even converted his opponents? <laughs> right? I know. There goes everything he just taught us. Yeah. Forget the 20 bucks. We're not buying the books, you know. <laughs> no, um, let me answer that, though, real quick. Who's my customer at these debates? The audience. That's right. And there's two people, two types of people in the audience I'm after. The pro-lifers who feel so timid about their view, they're not sure they have the confidence to defend it. What happens to them when they see their case persuasively defended? Their confidence goes way up. I'm also after the open-minded skeptics. When I debated Malcolm Potts at UC Berkeley, off to my uh, left, three rows back, and off to my right toward the rear was almost the entire skeptics club on Berkeley campus. And you know what they did after that debate? They hung around for nearly 90 minutes so they could just chat with me. So the president, or one of the, I don't think he was a president, but one of the leaders of the club comes up to me and says, you're a smart theist, aren't you? <laughs> I said, we all are. How come you're not one? Uh, <laughs> and uh, no, I didn't say that. Uh, I said, well, I do the best I can. He said, you know, it was really refreshing to hear you, you make a case. And then he said, your opponent didn't make a case, and we all noticed that. Now, did, I, did they all fall down on their knees and confess Christ? No. But I put a pebble in their shoe. And then one of the girls in the Skeptics Club came up to me and said, I really feel you, you, you were not very effective tonight. I, I, you didn't persuade me. And so I looked at her. I think this was a Holy Spirit moment because I, this isn't in my nature to do this. I said, would you be willing to wait just three minutes till I finish signing books here? I need to hear what you have to say because my critics can make me better. And you're one of my critics. And maybe I'll get better if I hear what you have to say. I thought she was going to pass out right there. You're going to listen to me? Yeah, I'm going to listen to you. Now, uh, she turned out to have nothing really to say. She just... Stuck around and listened. And I gave her my email. I said, you email me. I want to hear what you have to say. I'll get better if I hear what you have to say. And so I, didn't hear, I haven't heard from her. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going back to UC Berkeley in April to debate Malcolm Potts again in front of 700 built-in student audience, 700 students and whoever comes from the public. And I'm going to go to that atheist club. I've already given them the invitation. I'm going to go sit down in their club and say, I'm going to sit here and for one hour, I want you to tell me as a theist how we can do a better job communicating with you. Now, I know there would be critics who say, that's not evangelism. You've got to give them the gospel. Well, Greg Kokel's right. Let's put a pebble in their shoe. Let's give them something to think about. By the way, you've never won anybody to Christ. And neither have I. 
and you never will. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts hearts and draws those that belong to Jesus to Him. Your job is to be a faithful witness with whatever degree you're given to share truth. That's what you do. By the way, wouldn't evangelism be a whole lot easier if you didn't feel you had to close the deal all the time? Yeah. You don't have to close the deal. So no, I have not converted anyone that I've debated one-on-one. Now, Nadine Strawson and I have talked about the gospel. And uh, that's been fun, and she's been very... We're very good friends, actually. Hey, you know what? Nadine is no more lost in her sins than I was in mine. The question, as I understand it, is suppose we aren't able to prove that the unborn are human, is there some value in making the case that at least potentially they're human? Is that what you're, you're arguing? Yeah, okay, good question. Um, potential is tricky because our critics use potential. They call the unborn potential life. And their argument goes like this. A potential human is not an actual human. So therefore, if the woman aborts a potential human, it's not wrong. An acorn is not an oak tree. Therefore, uh, you know, abortion's no big deal. Now, our critics are misconstruing what we mean by potential. Their definition of potential goes like this. A kitten, and this is Michael Tooley's argument, philosopher at the University of Colorado Boulder, he says a kitten could be given a magic serum that would suddenly make it have the brain of an adult, an adult human. But just because it has the potential to receive that serum doesn't mean it's a human being. Likewise, just because the fetus is potentially a human adult doesn't mean it has a right to life, okay? Now, Thule is confusing what we mean by potential. He is confusing what we call active potential with passive potential. And let me unpack the difference. The tree that I've just cut down in my backyard has a, has a passive potential to become a table, but I've got to act on it externally. I've got to saw it up, construct it, uh, varnish it, stain it, you know, all that. But the unborn human being is already a human being. It doesn't require any outside thing to happen. It just develops from within what it already is. It doesn't need a serum, a magic serum, the way Thule's kitten does. Does that distinction make sense? So our critics confuse what we mean by active and potential, or active versus uh, passive potential. Um, so we need to be careful that we define what we mean by potential and not default to their view. However, there is something we could do, and I call this the agnostic argument. I mentioned it earlier. If we don't know if the unborn are human, that's a very good reason not to kill them. For the same reason, you're not going to run over the old coat in the road driving home tonight. And yes, you could make that case. You could, with someone who's throwing up a lot of walls, say, well, let's just grant for the sake of argument that you're right. We don't know if it's human. Well, then, should we be killing the unborn? Wouldn't it be negligence to kill something if you didn't know what it was first? And I think you could make uh, a very powerful point that way. Great question. Um, who had, okay, green shirt, and then we're going to go. I know somebody else had their hand up. I'll do my best to keep them in order. The question is, Roe v. Wade gives, uh, Roe v. Wade and his companion case, Doe v. Bolton, give 
uh, an unrestricted, for all practical purposes, right to an abortion through the duration of pregnancy. And the question is, at the same time we have that, we have 29 states with fetal homicide laws that say that if you kill a fetus, you will be prosecuted. Of course, there's one exception. What is it? Abortion. So, for example, if you're a drunk driver and you collide with a woman and kill her fetus in 29 states, you're going to get charged with homicide and uh, maybe even worse. Uh, Scott Peterson, the case out in California where he murdered his wife and her unborn child, he was charged with what in California? Two murders. So this is cognitive dissonance to the max. And so the question is, could a man who killed a fetus, maybe he uh, did that to a girlfriend or whatever, could he appeal to Roe v. Wade that, hey, listen, um, this fetus has no standing in the law, therefore I did no wrong? And the answer is no, and here's why. Roe v. Wade really tries not to answer the question, what is the unborn? Now, it does answer it, but it claims that it doesn't. Justice Blackman said we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins when there is no agreement among philosophers, theologians, scientists about whether the unborn are human. Now, you can see right away this is totally bogus. Since when does the absence of consensus mean an absence of truth, as Hadley Argus points out? I mean, people disagreed on whether the earth was flat or round. Did it mean there was no right answer? They once disagreed on whether slavery ought to be permitted. Did it mean there wasn't a right way to think about it? So this is bogus thinking. By the way, black men really did decide when life begins because when you argue that abortion should be legal through all nine months of pregnancy, aren't you deciding when life begins? You're deciding it begins when? Birth. But there's nothing in the structure of Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, that I'm aware of that would allow him to petition because what these two cases do and follow-up Supreme Court cases is they put the locus of decision-making squarely with the woman. If she wants her child, it may have rights the state can recognize. Thus, we have fetal homicide laws. But if she doesn't want the child, no standing at all. So I think that's where it would shake out. I think it's, it's curious, it's interesting, but I just don't see, the court has not shown any indication of consistency on this issue whatsoever. And um, I'm just not very, I hope I'm wrong, I mean, I would love to be wrong on this, but I'm just not convinced it would change. Yeah, let's take rape first, then we'll go to health, okay? In the case of rape, here's the argument. Every time that pregnant woman who was sexually assaulted Every time she looks at her offspring, she'll have a painful memory of what happened. And you know what? I think as pro-lifers, we ought to concede that point. I think we come off looking very, very bad when we do not show adequate concern for the woman who's been assaulted. And if you do not mirror that concern or, or illustrate that concern, I think no matter what answer you give, you're not going to convey any kind of persuasive content to your critic. Having said that, <clears throat> here's the question you should ask. You say to the person, you and I agree that a woman who's been sexually assaulted and becomes pregnant and gives birth because of that rape, you and I agree that she may indeed suffer psychological pain as a result of giving birth to that child. We agree on that. 
The question is this. How should a civil society treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Pause. Let the question sink in. And here's your follow-up. Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? Now, what does that bring us right back to? The question, what is the unborn? Would we kill a toddler who caused us painful memories over what his father had done? No. So the real issue here is what? What is the unborn? The objection from rape assumes the unborn aren't already human because we wouldn't kill toddlers whose fathers were rapists. We only kill fetuses. So we're assuming something here about the unborn. In other words, we're asking the question, does hardship justify homicide? And as philosopher Peter Kreft points out, it is better to suffer evil rather than inflict it. And I'll give you an example that might help. My uh, 21-year-old son is in Afghanistan, as I mentioned. He's a combat engineer. He is at a COB, which is a contingency operational base. They're, they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And... Um, I'm not even quite sure I know what their mission is. But I know that they don't have a lot of friendly neighbors. Uh, Let's say they're out on patrol one day. And let's say that Tyler and five of his fellow U.S. Army soldiers are captured by Taliban. And let's say the leader of the Taliban says to Tyler, we're going to start torturing you and your fellow Army men. But if you will help us torture your fellow servicemen to get information out of them, we won't torture you. You think he's going to take that deal? No. He'll suffer evil rather than inflict it. And I think it's fine for us to admit that the woman who has been sexually assaulted is going to suffer. The question we're asking, does hardship justify homicide? Is it better to suffer evil or inflict it? Another way you can deal with this tactically is to ask the person in a situation where a woman who has been raped and is pregnant, are there three people involved or two? What does that get us right to? What is the unborn? Are there three people involved or two? Most of the time people tell me three. And then I follow up this way. How should we treat each? Should we execute the rapist? What do all the liberals say? No, you can't do that, okay? Should we execute the woman? No! Should we execute the innocent child? Now, that again creates cognitive dissonance. So that's another way you can approach this. Um, To get it back to the question, what is the unborn? Health was the other one. Health is a weasel word. Always define it. Um, Greg Kokel teaches a course called Tactics in Defending the Faith, and he teaches this tactic called the Columbo Tactic, where you learn to ask questions to get off of the hot seat. You all know who Columbo is, right? You know, ma'am, where were you the night of the 12th? Okay, you know, and just one more thing. And he one more things him to death, right, until he just nails him with a question. And Kokel has developed this brilliant, he's got a book called Tactics. You've got to get it. Go to Amazon, just get that. After you spend 20 bucks a night, go home and spend another 14 on tactics. Um, Columbo just keeps asking questions. And one of the most important questions we need to learn to ask is, what do you mean by that? So when someone says, well, what about for life of the mother or health of the mother, health of the mother? What do you mean by health of the mother? 
Now, they're thinking more than likely, well, physical health, life. That's not what the Supreme Court means by health. In Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the Supreme Court said that a state may enact third trimester restrictions on abortion. Not had to, may if and only if those restrictions do not interfere with a woman's, quote, health, unquote. In Doe v. Bolton, the court went on to define health so broadly you can drive a Mack truck through it. In fact, the court relied on the World Health Organization's definition of health, which is well-being, family well-being, social well-being, economic well-being. The court said all of these things count as health Reasons. Oh, and by the way, who gets to determine whether it's a health reason? The doctor ready to perform the abortion. Are we talking here about the fox guarding the chicken coop? We are. So you want to ask, what do you mean by health? And make sure it's defined. Now let's talk life of the mother. There is a case that I can attest to where a woman who is pregnant, her health is directly threatened by a pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy would be a case in point. So here's the question. Ectopic pregnancy is nearly always lethal. And don't, please, everybody hear me on this. There are some pro-lifers out there running around saying, oh, it's not so dangerous. They need to go consult the peer-reviewed medical literature. Go to the CDC and look up ectopic pregnancy and read it. This is serious stuff. Now, that's not to say there couldn't be rare cases where an atopic pregnancy gets managed. But overall, it's a really dangerous situation. And so here's the question. You're a physician. There's your patient. Atopic pregnancy. Is it better to do nothing and lose two humans or act in such a way that you save one even though the unintended an unavoidable result is the death of the embryo. And I argue that the greatest moral good you can do in that situation is to act to save the mother's life. In that case, the death of the embryo is foreseen, but it's not intended. A general in a just war can foresee the deaths of innocent human beings, but he does not intend them. With elective abortion... The death of the unborn is both foreseen and intended. But that's not the case here. The physician could have a very strong pro-life principle. But he knows the greatest good he can do in the situation he's been handed, or she's been handed, is to act in such a way that you save one life rather than do nothing and lose two. Now, before you think, oh, that's moral relativism. No, it's not. No, it's not. I'm arguing objectively that is the correct way to go morally. Relativism is anything goes. You have your morality, I have mine. This is not relativism. I'm saying the best objective good a physician can do in that, in that state, since we can't save the embryo, the embryo will die in the tube. As that tube, in case you wonder, as that tube grows with the embryo in it, what's going to happen? Well, the embryo is going to cause a rupture of her uh, tube and she's going to hemorrhage to death. So what's the greatest good? Save one life rather than lose two. Now let me very quickly just deal with a couple of objections that come up here. There will be those who say, well, we should trust God for a miracle. We need to be careful, I think, about presumption versus faith. 
If you have a morally permissible option in front of you and you demand that God take and do a miracle instead, is that faith or is that presumption? I think it's presumption. Now, there, there can, I'm not making the claim God has never done a miracle in this situation. I'm sure he has. But we're not obligated to punt to the miracle when we have a morally permissible option in front of us. Someone else could say, well, it's the same as abortion. It's the same procedure. Well, first of all, let's assume it were. Morality can't be reduced to behavior. Stealing and borrowing look the same, don't they? What defines one as good and the other as bad? The intent and motive of the actor, right? If you see a neighbor going into, or you see a stranger going into your neighbor's house and walking out with a stereo system, well, you don't know if he's borrowing it or stealing it. But all the difference in the world is made by what his intent is. Oh, your neighbor called him at work and told him to come by and get it. Okay, well, that changes everything. The act is the same, though. You can't reduce morality to behavior without looking at intent. So these are just a few thoughts on this. Um, I don't know if I've gotten everything out of the way on that. What's your time frame here? I didn't even... Okay, I can take one more. And who is that lucky person going to be? I guess it's you, sir. Well, first of all, the question is, um, what about those who seem to acknowledge that the unborn are human but say they'd be better off dead anywhere, anyway because of poverty, they're going to have hardship, or maybe they have handicaps? The person who said that doesn't really believe the unborn are human because they wouldn't kill toddlers for those reasons. They only kill fetuses. I mean, suppose we had a disabled toddler up here. Would they say, yeah, go ahead, slit his throat? No, they wouldn't do that. So there, those people I don't believe. However, there are some people who do bite the bullet. Uh, Peter Singer being one of them. Peter Singer says in his book, Practical Ethics, we know what the embryo is. It is a member of the species Homo sapien. He concedes that out front. But here's what he argues. He says there's no essential difference between a fetus and a newborn. So far, so good, right? Remember SLED? Peter Singer agrees with SLED. But Peter Singer says this. Fetus, newborn, neither one is self-aware, kill both. We say fetus, newborn, no essential difference, save both. The argument's the same. The conclusion is radically different. He bites the bullet. Another one who bites the bullet is Judith Jarvis Thompson. She's a philosopher at MIT. And in 1971, she wrote an essay called A Defense of Abortion. And she argues this. Let's grant, she says, for the sake of argument, that the unborn are human and that they have a right to life. We'll even call them persons. But does it follow that a mother is obligated to use her body to support the life of another human being if she wishes to withhold that support. And she spins a tale to illustrate it. She says, imagine you wake up one morning in the hospital and you are suddenly connected back to back to a world-famous violinist who's been placed there by the Society of Music Lovers. This violinist has a kidney pathology and he's going to die from it unless he has use of your kidney for nine months, after which you are free to detach yourself and go on your way. But until then, you can't detach yourself because if you do, he'll die. And because he has a right to life, even though this is an inconvenience to you, you must agree to this. And then Thompson says this. It'd be nice if you agreed to that, but must you? 
That'll throw you back a little bit. Because Thompson just bites the bullet. You know what she just did to pro-lifers? The most powerful thing you can do in a debate. Look your opponent in the eye. Say, I'm going to grant your entire premise and you lose anyway. That's bold. So, do we lose? I think we do if being hooked up to that violinist is parallel in morally relevant ways to a woman being hooked up to her own child. If it's true that being hooked up to that stranger violinist parallels a mother's connection to her own child, I think Thompson's case is unassailable. The question is, are they parallel in morally relevant ways? What do you think? Okay, why not? I agree, but why not? (laughs) Yeah, there's a biggie. You generally don't just wake up one morning and find yourself pregnant. Now, you are right on the money with, I think, the biggest problem. And interestingly enough, several philosophers who support abortion have raised this very problem. Marianne Warren being one of them. Uh, And what she points out is, other than the cases of rape, Thompson's argument clearly falls apart. Do you see other problems, though? Yeah. Pregnancy is not a pathology. It's not a disease. Um, Yeah, now here's another thing, too. Why is the violinist going to die? What's really ailing the violinist in Thompson's little thought experiment here? His underlying pathology, right? A pregnant woman doesn't have an underlying pathology. Uh, And so there's another breakdown. Um, How about this one? Is pregnancy more, or or excuse me, is abortion more than merely withholding support? I think so. Isn't it actively killing another human being through dismemberment, poisoning, and the like? Francis Beckwith has a great line. He says, calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. I mean, something more is going on here, right? So the parallels, I don't think, work. Um, isn't it also true that the very thing that makes it plausible for Thompson to disconnect herself from the violinist, namely that he's a stranger unnaturally hooked up to her, is precisely the thing that's not true in the mother's relationship to her own offspring? What if the mother woke up finding herself attached to her own child? Does that change things a little bit? You may not have a right to give your own child, or you may have a right if you're so callous to deny your child a blood transfusion using your blood. But you don't have a right to slit your child's throat just because he needs that transfusion. And I think these are serious problems with Thompson's argument. We talk about them in in the material at the back table. Okay, I've run out of time. Thank all of you for coming out on a snowy night in D.C. uh, to hear about a tough topic.